Thank you, Aaron. Is Cade here? Cade didn't make it. Okay, that's good, because I'm about to tell a story. Um, and he and I both probably have trauma from it. So Cassie, uh, like all the mic problems, reminded me of this moment about a year ago where we were getting ready for our Good Friday service. Uh, Cade and I had just spent probably 30 hours the previous week putting these speakers up in the ceiling. And you know what you do whenever you've put in a hard week's work. You're like, hey, did you notice those speakers? They're floating. Like, we did that. Like, he and I were just all about it and so excited. We were like, this is going to be the greatest night of our lives simply because we can hear everything really well. And so the worship team had gone through their rehearsal. They were sounding great. The room was bumped. It was just awesome. And then service began at 7, 6.55. We were like, oh, we need microphones. And so we plug in the microphones, and all we hear is... And nothing. We scrambled I've, moved, I've never moved that fast in my life. We scrambled and tried everything we could for about five minutes to fix it. Nothing would stop it. It just... And so we had to do that service a cappella. And uh, we sadly did not have uh, our microphones. We didn't have a sound system whatsoever. And so as the mic was coming in and out, I was having a little PTSD going, oh... Okay, I'm not quite as loud as Cassie. I've never received the feedback that you are too loud. Uh, in fact, I get the opposite. So here we are, doing our best, struggling through it all. Uh, it's so good to see you all uh, this morning. I'm grateful for the sun. I'm grateful for the almost spring feeling. Uh, just this past week, you know, we're celebrating on Wednesday with the Chiefs, but it's cloudy and gloomy. And I'm like, I'm just so sick of February. I am ready for flowers, I'm ready for spring, and it's almost there. We're almost there. Uh, well, we are beginning a new series of talks today called In the Wilderness. In the Wilderness, we'll be kind of walking through the season of Lent, exploring how we can practice the way of Jesus in wilderness seasons in our life. And this coming Wednesday, we will be observing Ash Wednesday, as Cassie mentioned. Our invitation is come on out, experience Ash Wednesday. It's this moment to really soberingly be reminded of our own mortality. To be reminded that from dust we came and to dust we will return. Again, sounds like a major bummer, but there's this moment about being reminded that this life is finite that reorients our priorities. Being reminded that there will be a day in which we will take our last breath makes every breath now all the more precious. So our invitation is come on out 8 p.m. on Wednesday night as we begin the Lenten journey. Well, Midtown Church occupies a little bit of a strange space. Uh, we've been talking about this liturgical season called Lent, but we're not necessarily connected to an organization or a denomination that has a formal liturgical tradition. Yet, here we are, making our way through it. In fact, uh, we had an overseer come by something uh, a couple months ago, and he's like, 
man, you guys do a lot of really formal things. And I'm like, I promise if you were to come, it isn't that formal. But in a lot of ways, if you've grown up in maybe a more evangelical space, the idea of us saying things together or the idea of us observing Lent is a little bizarre. But in 2016, I had just finished my undergraduate, and I had been exposed to the beauty of the liturgical tradition for the first time. I had just finished undergraduate in a speedy five years. I know, you're all impressed. If you remember that moment in 2016, there was a bit of a contentious election. And I remember just these moments of struggling. I didn't quite have a crisis of faith. It was more like a crisis of community. It was more of this crisis of what do I do with the church? The people who had introduced me to Jesus had decided to stop looking like Jesus. And maybe they were never all that much like him, but I had this moment of reeling and going, there's got to be more to being the church than this desperate, desperate power grab for a man who weaponizes our faith. There's got to be more to it. I had a crisis of community and I floundered. And through that time, Cassie and I discovered this little tiny community church tucked away in a neighborhood aptly called Solid Rock. It was in that little church we found a faith community that checked its ambition at the door. It was in this little faith community that welcomed little ones into the space of worship, and they cherished the little laughter, the spilled coffee, the joyful chaos that says, welcome, this is a family. It was in that little community of Jesus followers that the idea for this little community of Jesus followers took shape. And at Solid Rock, we experienced the mystery and the beauty of the liturgical seasons as they guide us through the story of Jesus. It was in that space that we were exposed to it and we found so much life in anchoring ourselves into a story more ancient than ourselves. We learned that we as the people of God tell time differently. We as the people of God mark our calendars by a different set of holidays and seasons. Whether you are aware it aware of it, excuse me, or not, our calendars shape us. You've likely had the experience of walking up to Cassie and I and saying, hey, we should grab coffee or something, and we whip out our phone and we're like, ah, man, I can't help you until three weeks from now. I'm so sorry for that experience, but the reality is our calendars shape us. Your priorities are on your calendar. How you spend your time is on your calendar. Our calendars shape us. They shape us in our day-to-day. -day. They shape what we anticipate. Think about it. Students and teachers are counting down the days until spring break. They're counting down the days until the next vacation. They're counting down the days until summer begins. Sports fans, we've begun Already our yearly countdown to the next Super Bowl. We can't wait for March Madness. We can't wait for the World Series. As U.S. citizens, we celebrate Memorial Day, Independence Day, or Labor Day. 
Our calendar has a way of shaping our day to day and forming our identity. Our calendars highlight what is important and what we anticipate. And as the church, we are choosing to pattern our lives and our calendar after that of Jesus. We're choosing to mark time not by holidays in our culture, but by the days and the times Jesus showed us. In each season, we are guided to reflect on a different moment in the life of Jesus. It's a guide that year over year shapes our identity, our practices, and our stories. And there are many different versions of the Christian calendar, but in broad strokes, these are the five liturgical seasons we as the Midtown Church community will emphasize and want to mark our days by. The first is Advent and Epiphany, telling the story of God with us. The beauty of God becoming man and dwelling amongst his people. Then the season we are about to enter, Lent, God prepares us. In seasons of wilderness, we find ourselves prepared by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then there's the best season, Easter, where the story is told of God for us. The God who breaks down sin, death, and Satan and reigns victorious over all the world. It is a story of God for us. Then comes Pentecost, God in us. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Elijah and Elisha. His spirit now dwells in his people, and we are sent in ordinary time, the best name, Ordinary time, we discover that God is working through us. In the ordinary moments of work, in the ordinary moments of dishes and life at home, in the ordinary moments of a meal with friends or the ordinary moments of interacting with a neighbor, we discover that God is working through us. Our church calendar leads us through the story of Jesus. In this coming Wednesday, known as Ash Wednesday, we begin the season of Lent. Now, if you grew up celebrating or observing the Lenten tradition, your perspective might simply be that that's when we don't eat red meat or sweets or we cut out the alcohol. Uh, in some ways, Lent has kind of been treated like a second go-round at New Year's resolutions. Like, I didn't stick with my diet before, so I'm just going to cut out food on Wednesdays altogether. I understand the impulse, but that's not Lent. Rather, Lent is a season of preparation, a season of dedication to repentance, to abstinence, to fasting, in order to prepare one's heart for Easter. Listen, Easter is the most impactful event in human history. And I think it makes sense for us to spend 40 days preparing our hearts to truly understand, to truly taste and see what our God is up to. Lent is a season of preparation in the wilderness. It's a season of uncovering what's deep down in our hearts and bringing it before God time and time and time again. So with the few moments we have, I want to do three things. 
First, I want to ground our season of Lent in the theme of wilderness. So we're going to start in Genesis. We're going to work our way through a couple of well-known wilderness stories. Then I want to ground Lent in the story of Jesus in particular, based around the text that was just read. And then finally, I want to offer maybe a menu of practices, a menu or a way of practicing the Lenten season that you, your family, and your microchurch can consider as we prepare to walk through Lent. So if you would turn with me to page one, where we are introduced to the wilderness. You can turn, you can scroll. There's no, no judgment. No judgment here. Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Pause right here. There are two metaphors baked into verse 2. The first is that the earth was without form and void, and the second is that it was dark and there was the spirit hovering over the face of the deep waters. These are two seemingly contradictory metaphors for the pre-creation state. Think about it. The first is that of an uncultured, underdeveloped wasteland characterized by its lack. The first picture is of an untamed wilderness. The second is that of a sea. Stormy, chaotic, characterized by its way too much. Wastelands and stormy oceans are usually mutually exclusive ideas. Like if you've come across a wasteland and a stormy ocean, that's weird. Like maybe that is the reality. But I think there's something a little different in there, that it is a way of talking about the pre-creation state that's using metaphors and imagery for what it is like. Either way, however you want to read Genesis 1, the point is this, that Genesis 1 pulls on that second image. You read through Genesis 1, and it's all about God splitting the stormy oceans, raising land from the depths, and populating the earth with creatures. And then Genesis 2 picks up on that first image, the image I want to spend more time on, of a formless, void wasteland that our God begins to do something with. In Genesis 2, that first image is confronted as God takes the void in empty land and he plants a garden. Look at verse 5 in, in chapter 2. When no brush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist began coming up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the ground. God takes this pre-creation wilderness, a wasteland characterized by its lack, and he transforms it into a garden. He then creates human beings to care for said garden, and in chapter 3, an evil intelligence appears in the form of a snake and tempts the first humans to do what is right in their own eyes. 
an uprising against the creator and the fall of humanity. Look at verse 17 in chapter 3. God is quoted as saying, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. A wilderness turned into a garden, turned back into a wilderness. Often we read this passage in chapter 3, and we read it as God's reaction to Adam and Eve's rebellion as his pronouncement of punishment over their actions. But I think more aptly, this is God lamenting the consequences of his people betraying him. This isn't God choosing to send them back into the wilderness. This is him saying, you've transformed my good garden into a wasteland. He is mourning the betrayal of his people. And Genesis 3 closes with humanity leaving the garden and returning to the wasteland of their own making. And so this theme of wilderness begins to emerge, and it is the place of danger. It is the place of lack. It is the place where the people of God have been sent because of their betrayal. They've willingly chose a wilderness over home with God. The theme of wilderness continues to a lesser extent throughout Genesis with a couple of stories here and there. But its next major great appearance comes in the book of Exodus. So turn a few pages to the right to the book of Exodus. In Exodus 3, the runaway killer Moses is caring for a flock when he encounters the living God in a bush that is on fire. He's caring for sheep, and he sees something in the wilderness that catches his attention, a bush on fire. From that encounter, Moses becomes the prophet of Israel, challenging the Egyptian powers by the power of God. And in chapter 7, Moses says this. So we're looking at Exodus 7, specifically verse 16. Moses says this to Pharaoh, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. You guys know the story. You've seen the prince of Egypt. You know what happens next, and you probably have a few tunes that tell you what's about to happen. The story goes on that God forces Pharaoh to relent and the people of Israel leave the Egyptian cities for an uncultivated and dangerous wilderness. And the entire way, from day one, the Israelites grumble and complain and they give credit of God's victory to others. They turn to hedonism and all varieties of disordered desires to bring themselves comfort in the wasteland. They turn to anything else they can find to bring themselves comfort in this dry and weary land. And in their idolatry and stubbornness, they live as nomads for 40 years. In that wilderness, God time and time again meets his people. 
He provides food and guidance the entire way. He gives them the law and he transforms them from slaves into a nation. But ultimately, time and time and time again, they are the unfaithful people. They squander their time with God in the wilderness by choosing to give their heart to anything but God. Ultimately, they again fail in the wilderness. One more story before we turn to Jesus. You guys knew. We're going to get to Jesus. Turn to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. We want to talk a little bit about the prophet Elijah's time in the wilderness. You might be less familiar with Elijah's ministry, but he's a prophet during the reign of King Ahab. And one of the few descriptions of King Ahab is he is described as doing more evil in the sight of the Lord than the two previous kings. Like, that's a president being known by, he was way worse than the two guys who went before him. Like, that is his, that's his reputation in the scriptures. And Elijah rises to prominence by announcing a drought over the disobedient Israelites. And in chapter 18, he confronts King Ahab over the worship of a particularly brutal deity known as Baal. And there's this crazy showdown. I'm not going to read it. There's way too much to go through. But there's this crazy showdown between the prophets of Baal and Elijah where fire's called down. It's a whole thing. Uh, read it on your own time, but it's worth it. And at the end of this episode, Elijah is run out of town and he goes into the wilderness. He's exhausted. He's emotionally drained. He's at the end of his rope and he's hopeless. And so the only prayer he utters is, God, just let me die. And twice God sends an angel to confront this hopeless prophet. And this is the interchange between God and his prophet. Picking up in verse 7. Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. The angel provides food for Elijah. And Elijah arose and ate and drank and went in that strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I am, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces. The rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in that wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Or a better translation would be a thin silence. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
The voice of the Lord is not in the fire. It's not in the wind. It's not in the earthquake. It's in the silence of the wilderness that Elijah begins to once again be comforted by his God. There Elijah confesses his distrust of his God. He repents of his mischaracterization of the God of Israel. God meets him in the wilderness, but that's only after Elijah abandons his post and gives up. In each depiction of the wilderness throughout the story of Israel, God's people fail. They flounder. They get caught up in the wilderness season and they rebel. They distrust God. They turn to other deities. They grab power for themselves. They abandon hope and accuse God of abandoning them. They give in to their own disordered desires. They sin, distrusting that God's desire for them is the end of the wilderness and life in the garden. At each turn, the people of God flounder in the wilderness. And the invitation of the biblical narrative is to see ourselves in those people, to see our own mistrust of God, to see our own floundering in the story of the Israelites saying, God, where are you? And he's like, I've been here the whole time. Where have you been? The invitation of the wilderness is to see, to peer into our own heart and find the distrust of God and to root it out. The wilderness continues to make an appearance throughout the Old Testament. I wish I had time to tell you about David in the wilderness and him actually seeking safety as he runs from King Saul. I wish I could tell you about all the moments where God is found in the wilderness, but we have to turn to Jesus. Where all of these other figures fail, Jesus succeeds. Turn with me to Luke 4. In the three synoptic gospels, those known as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of Jesus' biographers tell a story of our Messiah's experience in the wilderness of Judea, confronting the evil one and preparing for his ministry. We read Luke's account, and that's the one I'm going to focus on. Just prior to chapter 4, Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. And upon coming out of the water, the heavens are pulled open, and God says to Jesus, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Luke then launches into a genealogy, positioning Jesus as the long-awaited king of Israel, And the Son of God, the one who will redeem all of the mistakes made. And then Luke writes this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. What a bizarre tension. Full of the Spirit. Jesus is led to a place of testing, a place of trial, a place of temptation. And that ancient serpent makes another appearance, tempting Jesus to turn rocks into bread, to give in to the ambition and to take power for himself. Three times Jesus is tempted. 
and is offered a different way to change the world. And each time he responds with words from scripture, resisting that temptation, resisting the evil one responsible for the brokenness of our world, a temptation to eat something, 40 days in a, bar in a barren wilderness, and the Spirit's leading. The entirety of this story should be sending you through flashbacks of what we just read. It is the whole of Israel's story put into a brief moment of our king in a wilderness. But where others have failed, our Jesus succeeds. Where others have floundered, giving in to their own disordered desire, Jesus stands in faithfulness and allegiance to his heavenly father and no other. He didn't give in to the voice of the enemy, and he emerges from the wilderness at the height of his spiritual prowess. The wilderness for Jesus wasn't a place of failure or floundering. It became a place of preparation for the ministry that was about to take place. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, how did Jesus do it? I know the easy answer would be, well, he's God, like, duh. And I think that misses the point of the fact that he is also human. He's not Superman. He experiences the same pain of hunger as you and I. Like, listen, I get grumpy after missing breakfast. Jesus went 40 days and 40 nights without nourishment, and yet here he is resisting the urge to turn a rock into a loaf of sourdough. Like, I'm not sure I have the same strength of will. And I don't think it's Jesus was made of entirely different stuff. That's a different conversation. I think he feels the same things we feel. I think the way Jesus did it is that he had patterned his life off the story of scripture and the love of his heavenly father. Remember, just a short time before this encounter with the devil, He's reminded of his identity by the Father and continues to use the scriptures to reaffirm that identity. The love of the Father and the story of his people carry Jesus through this wilderness experience. And our simple response to this is that we should pattern our lives after the one who overcomes the wilderness that we pattern our lives after the story of our Jesus. When we find ourselves in wilderness seasons, when we find ourselves in the midst of suffering, when pain and heartache come crashing into our lives, we oftentimes return to our default modes of processing the world. We oftentimes return to the stories that were embedded in us as a child. These are not the healthy categories of healthy theology or patient endurance, but the things we learned early in life. We give into the narrative like God has abandoned us because we are unworthy of his intervention. We give into things like God is punishing us for our poor decisions. We give in to narratives like our suffering is something we caused and we deserve. Or that God expects us to stop whining, to just grit our teeth and white knuckle our way through hardship. 
When moments of suffering, when moments in the wilderness come, we will oftentimes go back to those stories we learned as kids. Stories full of more guilt and more heartache than we could ever imagine. And these stories are deeply ingrained in us, hiding beneath the surface, stamped upon our heart. So as best I can tell, Apprenticeship to Jesus is engaging in a set of practices and habits that teach us a new story, that embed a new reality on our heart, that teach us a new set of impulses that root out the guilt and shame of our life and replace it with that of grace, love, and faithfulness to a father. We need seasons in the wilderness that pull out the unfaithful Israelite in us. We need seasons in the wilderness in which we discover that God has not abandoned us, but that he is in the silence. We need seasons in the wilderness where we discover that our God has always been there. We need seasons in the wilderness. And Lent is the annual practice that invites us once again to find our God in the wilderness. Worship team, if you would join me back on the stage, we'll wrap this up. As we go through the Lenten season, everything we talk about, everything we offer is an invitation. We will not force you to do anything. We won't twist your arm to make sure you're at Ash Wednesday. But the reason we're going through this is because we genuinely believe that when we engage in these practices, that our heart and our priorities will be clarified, that there will be a decluttering of our lives and that we will draw closer to our God. It is a season to declutter our souls and point ourselves back to the King who overcame the wilderness. The main theme of this season is repentance. That the people of God undertake a 40-day journey to uncover what's on our heart to expose ourselves time and time again to say, God, what is going on underneath the surface? What narratives, what stories, what default modes of processing have been contrary to the kingdom that you are bringing to this earth? It is a season of soul searching, of repentance. Now, oftentimes that term repent repentance is depicted as self-deprecation or guilt wallowing. Repentance is neither, rather it is an invitation to throw yourself into the love of God. The words of the prophet Joel echo as the Lord beckons us. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. So rend your hearts and not your garments and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, 
and he relents from sin being disaster. In the season of Lent, we are beckoned to submit ourselves to 40 days of repentance, to search our heart for sinful desires and to purge our lives of the disordered desires that so often creep up. Listen, a, a lifetime of allegiance to ourselves, a lifetime of learning other narratives will take far more than 40 days to purge, but 40 days is a good place to start. 40 days going, God, where are you? So we'll offer this community two individual practices and a few communal practices to help with this repentance. Each of these practices will spend probably a whole sermon just describing what it looks like to walk faithfully with God in the midst of this practice. But just for the sake of giving you a heads up, I want to mention two. The first one is fasting which is the practice of going without food and drink, except for water, for a period of time. I know people throw fasting at a whole lot of things. I want to specifically define it as going without food or water for an extended amount of time. Now, when I say an extended amount of time, I'm talking like 12 to 24 hours, not 40 days. The invitation in this is to do what you probably already do. Oftentimes we skip breakfast and lunch and about two o'clock we're like, I'm starving. The invitation in this is to be intentional about that experience. That in this season of Lent, may the hunger pain in your stomach align with the hunger of your soul for more of God. Fasting is the practice of going without food or drink. Our invitation is to choose a day. We will do Wednesdays and Fridays. Our invitation is take up Wednesdays or and Fridays. Maybe find another day of the week and go from maybe 6 p.m. the night before to noon the next day, 18-hour fast. The entire time cultivating a hunger for God. The next individual practice is abstinence. The practice of creating margin in our daily rhythms by removing things from our life. Not the practice of cutting out bad things this is the practice of cutting out good things that have become a distraction this is the practice of putting away the Netflix this is the practice of hiding the controller from yourself deleting the app this is the practice of creating margin within our calendars in order that our lives might be more fully given to the God of this world it is in some ways creating a in practicing fasting and abstinence that God will quickly bring things to the surface. To tell on myself a little bit, almost every time Cassie and I fast, she tells me, oh, you still have a grumpy problem. There's something about the removal of the things that distract us that bring a lot of things to the surface. In removing the comforts of food and removing the things we distract ourselves with, things will come to the surface of our heart and we will quickly recognize that we have a long way to go in faithfulness to our King, but it will be a beautiful season of learning that our God's grace is 
then as a community, we will practice this corporately by celebrating or remembering, this is probably a better word, remembering Ash Wednesday, a day to remember our own mortality and to quote the line from Genesis 3 that we came from dust and to dust we will return. A sobering reminder of our priorities are clarified and our hearts are renewed. Then every Sunday between now and Easter morning, we'll have a little bit of time right before the gathering, about 15 minutes before, just in pre-service prayer. We'll just open up this sanctuary as a place for us to just seek God right before we worship together. Our invitation is to come early. Spend a few minutes in the Lord's presence seeking Him before we gather as the Linton people. Our hope in this, as we journey through the wilderness, is that we discover the God of the wilderness. In the States, we are very familiar with the God of the mountaintops. We are very familiar with God when, when, when it's good, but the invitation of Lent is to discover God when it's not so good. To discover that God is as faithful in the wilderness as he is on the mountaintop. It is an invitation to reorient ourselves back to our first love, back to Jesus. as we prepare to journey in the wilderness with you we ask that we even now we would be filled with a sense of your spirit that like you the spirit would be guiding us into the wilderness into a time of fasting into a time of removing into a time of fostering faithfulness again to you that we once again might be reminded that you are the God who is as faithful in the wilderness as you are on the mountaintop. Jesus, be with us. It's in Christ's name we pray. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.